Very good. Uh, open your Bibles again uh, to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 6 and verse 20. And I have a confession to make, and this has never happened to me uh, before. Uh, I have stepped up here, and I have my Sunday school outline, and I do not have my sermon outline. And so I'm fixing to have to walk out the door to my office and pick up my sermon outline, and I will be back uh, to uh, preach this sermon in just a moment. But I'm going to go ahead and read the text. Since I all need know that you need to pray, I'm going to leave you to pray uh, while I go and get that set of sermon notes. But uh, again, it is good to be back with you uh, this morning, and I appreciate uh, you allowing me the time uh, to take some time off, and uh, it was all very well spent and very enjoyable uh, for Ellen and myself. Uh, she is now homesick. Uh, has a very, very bad cold, and so uh, uh, hopefully she can, she can bounce back uh, quickly uh, from that. But uh, I always feel out of sorts when at 11.19 on Sunday morning, I'm not standing right here. And uh, I always look forward to being back. I always enjoy uh, stepping back into uh, this pulpit. And you very graciously uh, receive me, receive uh, the message uh, from the Word of God. And so that's what we want to do, is to continue to proclaim to you uh, the truth. And again, uh, to uh, expect and depend upon God's Holy Spirit to apply these things uh, to our lives. We're going to continue our our study uh, from the Gospel of Luke and look at verse 21 of Uh, closely and specifically, but I want to read, if I can this morning, this entire passage uh, that uh, uh, introduces the Beatitudes, again beginning in verse 20 and going through verse 26, just to simply uh, remind you uh, of the context and how Luke has edited his material, uh, taking this same account or the same episode in Jesus' life and giving us uh, what he wanted us to have uh, to communicate uh, what he wanted us to know uh, from this particular sermon. So, again, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 20. And he, being Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, now for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are now full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did so to the false prophet. If you would, pray with me. And Father, we thank you for your grace and for your truth, for your testimony to us, given for our good, so that we may know you, so that our lives may be transformed to live as you would have us to live. Lord, be with us as we continue in this moment of prayer, in Jesus' name. 
All right, as we come to this, as I've said, Luke gives us an edited version of the Sermon on the Mount. And to be sure, Matthew gives us an edited version. Uh, we can assume that uh, uh, Jesus preached much more than is recorded in either scriptural account. And Jesus is communicating that which is characteristic or that which is blessed by God in the life of the children of God. We've looked uh, previously at the idea of how and what Jesus meant by being blessed in a state of poverty. And certainly it, it is at least includes the idea of financial deprivation, but goes far beyond that concept of being financially uh, in need. And then Jesus goes on to speak of those that are hungry. Now, one of the distinctions between our text before us today, the Luke text, and the text from Matthew 5, 6, is Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which Luke leaves out. Now, again, just as we saw previously in verse 20, while again, Jesus at least has partially in mind the idea of those who are physically hungry. It is also expansive and inclusive enough for those who hunger and thirst for, and I might add this modifier, for true righteousness. Now, we could artificially, I believe, insert this idea along with it. How many of you have actually undertaken a physical fast in your life? You've actually said, I will not eat food for a given period of time. Again, it's a very ancient spiritual discipline. Uh, it is something that uh, I've done on occasion. Uh, some of you, uh, because of various health concerns, probably don't need to do something like that. But... Uh, it really is something that God uses sometime to instruct and to discipline us. Uh, it's never a bad thing for, in, with a view toward God's grace, to say to the body that you're not going to dictate to me what and when I do something. You're not going to determine for me you're going to eat. That I'm going to establish authority over my body. Paul speaks of beating my body, making it my slave. And so many of us live according to the physical dictates of the physical body. And so it's never a bad thing to do that. And then beyond that, if nothing else, you took the money you'd spent on that cheeseburger and gave it to somebody who needed it more than you did. If nothing else, the time you would spend eating that cheeseburger, go pray, go read your Bible. Every time your stomach growls, God, Am I as hungry for you as I am for that cheeseburger? Do I long for your power and for your presence in my life as much as I'm longing to fill my belly up? Those are just, just really simplistic, easy things and, and beyond. But when Jesus speaks of those who are blessed, that is, they enjoy the, the benevolence and the benefits of a relationship with God, because they have an insatiable desire 
and I'll, I'll even kind of edit in this, for the, first and foremost, for the one who is righteous. I believe in the life of the believer, first and foremost, before it's for some type of personal characteristic or personal growth, which it is that. But first and foremost, it is to have an intimate, personal, powerful, transformative relationship with the incarnation of truth and righteousness, namely Jesus Christ. That I long for this. I ache for this. I, I ache to be intimate with him. I desire to speak to him. I desire to have a deep sense of his presence, of his approval in my life. I, I literally hunger for these things. I hunger in a way that the world would never satisfy. That is, you know, have, have any of you, and this doesn't apply to just the ladies, men, you see something online or in a store or with a for sale sign in somebody's yard or something, and you just want it. New TV, new shoes, new fishing rod, new gun, new golf club, what you name it. I, you know. And oh, oh man, just you just you just gotta have it. Do you have? that kind of aching, insatiable, irresistible desire for the power and the presence of God to be manifested in your life. And do you recognize it? And many times, it's nothing necessarily wrong in and of itself of acquiring something that you might enjoy. That's not my point in saying that. That sometimes if God has blessed you and you can acquire something that, that may be pleasant for you, not a bad thing. In fact, you can thank God. You can say, you know what? This is going to, I'm going to derive pleasure from it, but you know what? It'll pale in light of the pleasure that I'm going to know for all of eternity. You turn that thing so that, that while this won't fully satisfy, Jesus Christ will. You use those things as object lessons and disciplines in your life. But you realize that no matter how much I acquire, no, many, no, matter, no matter how much I indulge myself in the, the pleasantries that are available to me in this world, none of that, none of that will satisfy fully my soul. And so Jesus is saying, blessed are you when your insatiable desire is for the things of God and for ultimately God himself, not God's things. How many times have you heard me say, do you desire the master's presence or do you desire the master's possessions? There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Is your prayer life primarily, God, let me get, keep, and enjoy Fill in the blank. Give me more stuff. We need to be careful with that. So Jesus is saying that you are in a, a state of blessedness when you recognize that I cannot be ultimately satisfied by the pleasures of this world, even the legitimate ones. And I would, en I would encourage you to find things that bring you pleasure. And enjoy them if God allows you to. 
but use them as a reminder. These things pale with a view toward eternity. But that I hunger for the things that will endure into eternity. I, I hunger for the truth. I hunger for the presence of God. I, I hunger for His presence to be manifested in my life, to be manifested in my church, to be manifested in the community around me and far beyond. I desire that. I live for that. I ache for that. I yearn for that. I long for that. And so as we think about uh, this, and we, I'm not going to get down into it, but if you, if you look down to verse 25, you see the contrast. The contrasting woe, but woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. In other words, if the world satisfies you, you're actually under God's curse, which will be fully manifested in the future. The curse of God will be fully brought to bear upon you in the future. If you find yourself, all you can think about and all you desire are the things that belong to this present age. That's all you want. That's all that consumes your energy. Then woe to you. But you're blessed if indeed you recognize that nothing in this world will ever fully satisfy. And what I seek is total and full satisfaction in the presence and the power of God. No matter how big the house, no matter how new the car, no matter, no matter how pretty the woman or the man. They all get old. I'll just, leave, I'll just leave it at that, okay? They all get old and wear out eventually, okay? And so, again, you're blessed if you find that this world, does not satisfy you. Well, let's take, let's take a look a little closer. I began speaking of what I call the unresolved angst. That is, this sobering observation that I believe is not confined. It's, it's, it's different for the believer, but there's a sense where even the unbeliever looks at themselves and understands that, that, that I'm less than what I should or could be. Uh, both personally, and, and they, they look at the society, they look at the world, and they understand that the world is less than it should be. Again, whether it's culturally or whether in nature. We have just seen once again uh, a hurricane uh, wreck havoc, primarily on the Bahamas, but also coming up our east coast. We can say, yes, it's a natural occurrence, but folks, it's a part of what it means to live in a fallen world. It's not a part of the original design. When sin entered, hurricanes began, and, and far worse. And, and, and so we, we can look at the world, the unbeliever can look at the world and say, these things ought not be. There is an, there, there's things that go on that, that we shouldn't see these diseases. We shouldn't see these deaths. That's unnatural. And so we all look at the world and we look at ourselves and wish that I could be better and yes you look at the person you're married to and say I wish you'd be better don't we it's okay nod your head yeah it's okay we do and so 
we realize that, but, but the problem is that Romans 1.18 problem. We know there's an altness. We know there's a rightness. We, we, we have an ache for that, that, that things are out of kilter. They're out of balance. But to whatever degree we know what's right and what's ought, we pervert it. We suppress the knowledge of the truth. And we twist it around to, to kind of fit our little niche to fit our little, to scratch our little itch. In other words, even those of the progressive state of mind that want to advance this uh, second or third wave, however you want to count it, of the sexual revolution that we're seeing sweep through now, they look at the world and say, it's not right. It's not, it's not that they, they're saying it's not right to be involved in perversion. They're saying that the right thing is that everybody approve these things. There's something within them that says there is a rightness. Now, the whole, their whole compass has been thrown out of kilter. But do you follow what I'm saying? That everybody has a sense that things aren't as they ought to be. So again, for the believer, though, that the revelation of God given in Jesus Christ, the manifestation, the incarnation of truth and grace tells us what that rightness is. Tells us how everything ought to sit and operate and function. And so, again, we, we, we see things and we desire for them to be different. But for the believer, for the believer, we desire things as God desires designed and has redeemed them to be. That's what we're longing for. And so, yes, indeed, at some level, that is a, that's a universal insight. Everyone seeks rightness. The problem is they're, defi- they're self-defining rightness, okay? They're self-defining rightness. So what do we mean, or what does the Bible mean when it speaks of righteousness and it's an important biblical word. You know, there's a few words that you ought to master. You really should. I mean, you ought to know them inside out, backwards and forwards. You even ought to know the Greek and the Hebrew. But the concept of righteousness, uh, in the Greek, dikao, in the Hebrew, sadak or sadek, the idea of that which is right, that which is just, okay? Again, perfected, personified. In the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to know what righteousness is, you look at Jesus. You ought to understand holiness. You ought to understand sanctification. You ought to understand repentance and faith. All of those things are just words that you ought to know. And so we should hunger and thirst. And again, all people at all places at all times hunger and thirst. We've already established that. But you ought to hunger and thirst for true righteousness. Now, if... If I were to say to an individual, or if I were to say about an individual, let me put it this way, that person is righteous. Probably the average person, maybe even the average church person, would think that I'm being critical of that individual. You know why? Because we rarely hear the word righteous in our culture without the modifier self-righteous. 
right? In other words, most of the time, anytime we talk about something as being right or wrong, immediately the individual is accused of being self-righteous, okay? So we're not talking about self-righteousness. We're talking about God incarnate righteousness, God-informed righteousness. He is the standard. His Word is the revelation of that standard, of that which is true and that which is right. Even the Apostle Paul himself had a false idea about that which was righteous. And I think it's an idea that permeates both the world and the church. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3, if you will. Philippians 3, and Paul, in reflecting upon his life prior to his own conversion, if you had asked Paul the day before he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus, in other words, after watching Stephen martyred, after being known and, and uh, applauded, for his persecution of the church. If you had asked Paul, are you a righteous man, how would he have answered it? Absolutely. You're dead gum straight I'm a righteous man. In fact, I may be the most righteous man in Judah. That's the way he'd have seen himself. If you'd have asked him five years after his conversion, when supposedly he had grown dynamically As a follower of Christ, he had suffered for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you ask him then, Paul, are you a righteous man? He had said, I'm a chief of sinners. I am the worst and vilest of all men. Even though, from a moral, ethical standpoint, he was probably profoundly a better man than he was prior to his conversion. But again, he would have been thinking of it in two different ways. Let's see if we can see this. In, in Philippians chapter 3, and uh, what Paul has been saying in, in the first section of chapter 3, that he has warned the church to watch out for these Jews that are legalistic, that are trying to infiltrate the church with kind of this Old Testament ritualism and these demands, uh, external demands for uh, religious works. And he says that that I had embraced all of that and I had excelled in it. I had banked a lot of capital in Judaism, but I bankrupted. I counted that as loss. I've written all of that off. Everything that I valued under Judaism, I have given up. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubula. Go look that one up. Rubbish is pretty cleaned up. Now, some of y'all get a little ill with me, some of the language I use. But let me tell you something, folks. I ain't got nothing on Scripture itself. Okay? It uses some pretty coarse language sometimes. And that's one of them, okay? So, he, he, he counts them as just refuse, okay? These things that he once valued. 
He's counting them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, what's he saying? Am I a righteous man? Or asking Paul, are you a righteous man? If you're talking about in and of myself, absolutely not. But here's the thing. I have been counted, I have been credited as being completely righteous in Christ. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one aspect of the gospel that you need to really impress upon your heart and mind, because most of us have bad days occasionally, when if somebody were observing, they would go, that person's a preacher? That guy's a deacon. That guy's a Sunday school teacher. That guy, that lady's a member at North Clay Baptist Church. I mean, there are days, that, and, and then we know. Oh, my gosh. But God has given you the status and the identity of being righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what Paul says about that. Now knowing that as I stand before God, he sees me, in Christ as perfectly righteous, verse 12, not that my life, my conduct, my attitude, and my actions actually measure up to my identity. In other words, my grasp, uh, my, my reach, excuse me, my reach has exceeded my grasp, okay? Heath, that's no one of those Somerville things there. My, 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 my reach is, I can't quite fully get a hold of everything that it means for me to be counted righteous in Christ. But I, what I desire is for my life and the watching world to look at my life and say, I see the righteousness of Christ being incarnate in that man, that woman. That's what we desire. So not that I've already got the whole package perfected in my life, but here's the thing, I'm, I'm, I'm pressing on. I'm struggling forward. I'm, I'm, I'm working it out, the, that the grace of God is working its way out in fear and trembling in my life. And I'm forgetting all this junk that's behind me, and I'm pressing on toward the call or the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if you're maturing in your faith, you'll think like that. Let the experience of my life, the attitudes of my life, the actions of my life be consistent with how God has identified me in Jesus Christ. I hunger for those two realities to be joined together in my life. I strain forward for those things to be manifested in my life. I hunger for that. I know who I am. On one hand, I am unrighteous. I'm sold as a slave under sin. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's a reality. But thank God. But thank God. God doesn't see me that way. He sees me as righteous in Christ. Now, I desire, I have an insatiable desire for that righteous reality 
to be experientially manifested in the way I live. I hunger. I desire. I ache. I long. I pursue that until the day I see Jesus. Recognizing. Recognizing that I will never be perfect, but I can be better. I can be far far further along than I am and should be. I'm, I'm embarrassed sometimes. I, now that I'm an old man, an empty nester and all that kind of stuff, I have an opportunity to play golf uh, that I didn't have when the kids were growing up, didn't have the money, didn't have the time. And I play enough now to be pretty good, but I'm not. Oh, and it frustrates me. Oh, it just, oh, my goodness, just infuriates me. And that, that's just the reality. I mean, people say, well, what did you shoot today? And I say, usually too much. I, I'm embarrassed to say some, sometimes, same way with my Christian life. Now, am I going to go play golf again? Yeah, because I like it. I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment, whatever, whatever you want to say about it. But, but the thing is, it's like that in the Christian life. I've been a Christian long enough, I ought to have this thing nailed down. Folks, I ought to be far better than I am. No amens necessary. And so should you. Amen. Yeah, so should you. But we can keep pressing forward towards the promise. Knowing, again, if you're not resting in your identity, all, you are, all you're going to be is frustrated. All you're going to be is frustrated. So, we're not talking about... Self, and, and don't make this mistake. <clears throat> don't think that you're ultimately the standard for what's right or even what's true. Too often, we get the idea that... I'm the standard, I'm square, I'm, the, I'm, I'm right in the middle, uh, the bubble's right in the middle with me, and everybody else is off kilter, don't we? Don't we? And it's not a self-styled righteousness. It's not the thing, just because you don't do things that you find personally offensive does not make you righteous, Okay? And I, I've used this illustration a million times. But my parents, bless their heart, and, and really their generation, at least as I experienced it in the church growing up, they had they had, they'd quit dancing and they'd quit drinking, and uh, they still smoked cigarettes. I don't know how they got that one under the right. Yeah, so that was all, but anyway, that, that's another subject for another day. But... The preaching of that church, for the most part, most of my growing up, allowed them to think of themselves as far more righteous than they should have thought of themselves because they didn't care about going to a dance or buying a six-pack at the package store or the bootlegger. And just because you don't want to do fill-in-the-blank, or even that you do fill-in-the-blank that you think is good, does not make you righteous. You look at Jesus Christ. You look at the testimony of Scripture. Then determine. Then determine. 
are you righteous? As I say, most of those bad habits, those people were so proud that they weren't engaged in those bad habits that they were more sinful than the ones engaged in the bad habits. What an error. So it, and it's not longing for the good old days. Now, I've never been one to live much in the past. I loved kindergarten, and I didn't want to leave kindergarten, but I had to go to first grade. And I loved first grade. And I loved elementary school. And then I went to uh, upper elementary, as they called it back then. And I didn't want to leave upper elementary, and I went to junior high, and it was really cool. But I didn't want to leave junior high and go to that big old high school. There were four long hallways, and I didn't know what was on any of those hallways. I was scared to death my freshman, first day of my freshman year. I, I wanted to go back to junior high school. Loved high school. Didn't want to graduate. There were a few people down there that were ready for me to move on. But, but I loved it. And, and now, I was ready to graduate from college. I really was. I was kind of burned out with college. But in each, I've always just looked forward. I'm, I'm just not a big good old days kind of guy. I always look forward for the most part. It's not that I don't value, and I'm kind of sentimental about a lot of things past, but, but for the most part, I, I look forward. Just because you think things were better when Ike was the president or, you know, going back to whenever and people didn't do this or they did do that, just because you think it was better then and now it's worse does not make you righteous. Okay? Just because you think the 50s were so great or the 60s was so great or the 70s was... And there really was a lot of good music made in the 70s now, okay? But... but That does not make you righteous. Just because you found a few religious friends and y'all all agree that you're not going to say dirty words and, 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 and we're not going to do this and we're not going to go to these movies does not make you righteous. You just found some friends that y'all justify each other. The standard is Jesus Christ. The standard is the testimony of God. Do you long? To know His power, to know His presence, to know His truth. It's not self-centered. It's not society-centered. It's not, it's not the desire. Everybody desires a more righteous uh, society. Again, they're defined, you know, we desire that everybody you know, have equal protection and rights and be valued so we can all act like fools and nobody will say anything's wrong with being an idiot. They're desiring what they define as a righteous society. But that's not what it is. We desire for the individual and the culture, the society, to reflect God's ideas, God's ideal, God's standard for the way things ought to be. And ultimately, those ideals will not be perfected until what? Until we see Him. And we keep looking forward. And so... We need to understand these things. need to understand, again, who we are in Jesus Christ. And so all of this stuff, as I said, there's a certain type of personality. I'm not a perfectionist. Uh, I'm pretty self-critical. I've told you before, mo not most, maybe, but a lot of Sundays I leave and think I ought to quit. The sermon was so bad I ought not ever attempt another one. 
because I want to do well. I want to communicate well. I, I want to, to, to speak to you what God would have you hear and all those things. And, and I mean, in a lot of it, I want things to, to go well. But, but, you know, my dad built houses. And anybody that knows anything about building, put, hang a door, hang, hang a, a window, whatever. Have you ever got a, a, a door or a window perfectly square or level? The answer is no. The answer is no. Even if the bubble is right in the middle, it is not perfect. I, I was talking to Joey and a friend of his on the way home last night about some of the standards for things they're making out at the, the Honda plant. Beyond my comprehension, that, that, let, that the, 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 the tolerance for error is less than a width of a human hair. That's pretty tight. That's pretty tight standard. It, it, but, but, the, but the thing is, you would go bankrupt as a builder if you said, I'm going to work on this window until it's perfectly square and perfectly level because you will not achieve it. You have to say, this is within certain acceptable tolerances. My dad was a great businessman and a great builder because he could do things and make production and make money and do it good enough that it met an acceptable standard. He had a finished guy. He would cut a piece of crown mold three or four times to make it perfect. And again, finish work is a little different. But, but again, you can drive yourself crazy because perfection is not attainable. Perfection in your spiritual life, and folks hear this, perfection in the person you're married to is not going to be accomplished in this life. It's not going to be accomplished. But, but, we can grow, we can mature, we can desire to see the unrighteousness excised from our lives and desire to manifest more of the character of Christ. We can long for that. We can live for that. And so the solution, rather than driving ourselves crazy and just saying, I don't think I'm hungry enough for righteousness. I don't think I long for it enough. And I, I, is understanding first. The issue of my righteousness was resolved in the person and work of Jesus Christ that I have received by faith. The issue of my standing before God is resolved. And folks, if you don't rest in that, you will drive yourself insane. And notice what I said, rest in it. But you'll also frustrate yourself. If you don't at some level desire, hunger, for that righteous identity that has been given to you by the grace of God, it's not in a very real, very practical, very tangible, very experiential way if it's not manifested in your life. If you're not straining, as the Apostle Paul speaks of, in, in uh, sprinting, you see the guys as they approach that tape. I mean, they're, they are leaning forward, trying to get as much as they can of an advantage to break that tape first. And that's kind of the, Paul is straining and we should be straining. Yes, on one hand, we're resting. And you hold that intention with what? Straining. So that I may experience in this life the righteousness reality of the power of God given me in the gospel. 
so that I may live a life. And here, here's, the, here's the sales pitch. You want to know joy in this life? You want to know peace? You want to be, you want to be satisfied? Then those things have to find their their react their 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 uh, melting point in your life. They they have to come together in a way that you can understand and experience. Do I dread going to play golf this week? No. Even though I'm not I'm not going to shoot par. I'm I'm not going. I'm going to go out and have a good time of fellowship. I'm going to get some exercise. I'm going to have, have fun. But you know what? I'm going to try to get better at it. I'm going to try to get better. I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy trying to get better. In fact, I would enjoy going out there and getting one of those bags of balls and hitting them on the driving range, Something, even if it's 100 degrees out there today. And you say, you're an idiot, Tim. You're crazy. It's hot. Go sit under the air conditioner. Watch a replay of the Auburn game. But there's a joy in pursuing what's already yours. See, my perfection is already assured. My perfection as a golfer, not so assured. But I can enjoy the pursuit. How much more so can I enjoy the pursuit of the righteousness of God given in Christ? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be, they shall be satisfied. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word to us, for your truth, for the power of your truth, for the truth of your truth. May you apply it to our lives in increasing measure. May we May we know this powerful tension, this joyful tension in our life of knowing that we're moving toward that which is ultimately going to be accomplished, namely our sanctification. Lord, may we rejoice in that truth. May we live in light of your truth and the experience of your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.